Hello and good afternoon to those in Hong Kong joining us and we're broadcasting here from Guernsey and from Hong Kong for a joint Guernsey Finance and Hong Kong Green Finance Association webinar on funds financing and structuring, uh, funds financing and structuring and financing sustainability. That's a bit of a mouthful isn't it? I should have prepared that one earlier. So joining me today is uh, Tracy Ron Harris, Deputy, Deputy Director General from the Hong Kong Green Finance Association. Uh, good, uh, good afternoon Tracy. Ian Henderson, a director from um, ADM Capital, I should say managing director of ADM Capital there in Hong Kong, um, and also um, uh, Kate Hodson, a partner at Osiers, head of ESG funds at Osiers in Hong Kong, and uh, Kevin Smith, director at Kokorian, a Guernsey-based administrator and a member of our Green uh, Guernsey Green Finance uh, Association. So good morning to you all. Um, good afternoon. Uh, sorry, I should say good afternoon to you all. Good morning from here from Guernsey. Uh, get the time period right. It's pretty early in the morning. I'm still clearly waking up. Uh, looking forward to this morning. So good morning. I will uh, just say thank you very much on behalf of Guernsey Finance and Hong Kong Green Finance Association. So good morning, everybody. Good morning. morning. Good morning. Morning. Just checking to say we're all there and alive. I know we've been uh, just making sure that it, it works interactively. We did this um, just a couple of weeks ago, broadcasting across continents. So we were part of the New York Climate Week. It was a really amazing experience. And we were broadcasting across the pond uh, stateside with Gillian Tett and Anastasia Amorosa, JP Morgan. We had Guy Hands here in Guernsey with it. And so it's amazing just two weeks later to be doing a similarly looking the other way. And that was that typical, that UK sort of British time zone to be able to look east and west at the same time uh, and bridge the uh, the two regions of the world. So it's it's really nice. I grew up on, uh, on that sort of maxim, as it were. So thank you very much to everybody and looking forward to a great conversation after it. Um, and what I'll do is I'll just do a quick scene set for, for all of us there. What this, it's amazing to, have, to be working collaboratively with Hong Kong here. We're both, uh, both, that is the Hong Kong Green Finance Association and Guernsey Green Finance, a member of the United Nations FC4S and indeed, and that's how we, despite the fact that um, I live just around the corner from your sister, uh, actually that's when we first met in that in spirit of international collaboration. Um, and it's through that international collaboration and partnership, it was, it was great to, to learn from each other in the green finance space and in that spirit looking for a conversation today about how funds can finance uh, sustainability and climate change mitigation it's a massive agenda we all know the big numbers um, unfortunately this year cop 26 got delayed by years to next year but over here on this side of the world you know cop 26 is still a, a big thing but it was probably kicked off you know in the, in the most sort of recent zeitgeist with cop 21 in paris in 2015 um, and we all know the tcfd agenda led uh, by, by my young you know, over, over in Asia, uh, particularly uh, driving that globally through the G20, the TCFD agenda. It's a global movement. It has internet partnerships. Guernsey's role in this is we're proud to have made a strategic commitment as a jurisdiction. We're a small little island off the coast of northern France over here in Europe, uh, but administering over a trillion in private wealth in a fund sector of 400 billion US and Europe's leading PE centre. But we made a huge commitment to sustainability. Similarly to Hong Kong, we're a network of the network. Of, we're a member of the network for greening the financial system, um, and we've made you know we're both partners in the IOSCO working groups on green finance. So it's a major thing for us here and looking to learn and. Uh, that collaborative spirit this morning. So I've introduced the panel. I think I've made it quite clear we're really proud to be doing this jointly this morning. In terms of the context of the numbers, what we're looking at, we all know the IPC targets for the 1.5 
degree uh, mitigation to, to reduction in climate change increase of you know, the requirement for investment of 1.5 trillion annually. A year ago, we were looking at probably being short of that quite significantly so you know things will have probably um, gotten worse over that time period at least initially we're all aware of the ipcc targets the sdg agenda that's in the united nations sustainable development goals that occurred alongside the um uh, the COP21 uh, agenda. So we had TCFD, we had COP21, we had the UN SDGs, the 2030 targets, the investments. And this year, particularly, it's been an enormous uh, revisit and recap for the ESG agenda, the environmental, social, and, and, and governance uh, agenda, which, you know, if you if you've watched any media in the space, you can't move for everybody, but, you know, holding up that flag and saying, I'm, I'm an ESG advocate too. So it's massive, massive agenda, not ever off. Green historically has been associated with the bond market. It was the, um, sort of the, the early adopter in this space. If you're looking to root capital into green, you're looking to the green bond markets. They're massive in Asia, they're massive in, in Europe. Uh, less so developed in, in the US. Um, and the fund sector is sort of probably catching up with that, which is the topic for today. What can we learn uh, both across uh, across the regions from each other, but also transpose from the, the fund sector, uh, sorry, from the, the bond sector into the fund sector. So all of that smorgasbord of introductions as well. Have I left anything out, Tracy? Because what I wanted to do was kick off with, with our discussion today with your introduction to explain to us you know, how you see that green finance, that green agenda context from Hong Kong, from, this, you know, from your perspective, and also the perspective of the Hong Kong Green Finance Association, and, you know, to basically kick us up with, you know, a, a little tour uh, to the table of what's occurring in your neck of the world. Sure. Thanks, Andy, for the intro. And on behalf of HDGFA, we are delighted to be co-hosting the masterclass with Gansi Finance, deep diving into the hot topic of ESG funds. In fact, ESG is such a hot topic that I was on a live talk um, on ESG funds with the retail investor last night. And um, of the seven working group um, in HKGFA, the ESG integration and disclosure working group is one of the biggest. So back to your questions on the state of play of green and sustainable finance policy and market development in Hong Kong. Are you sure you want to ask me about that? How long have you got? <laughs> uh, just checking. Probably not long enough. <laughs> so I keep it brief, but um, so I will start with the policy direction and then I'll go into the market. Um, so I have to say that over the past 24 months or so, green and sustainable finance in Hong Kong has been developed at a rapid pace. Um, this is fueled by a mixture of green finance policy enhancements, strong green finance project financing and need and ESG investors demand across both China and Hong Kong. Um, let me start with the policy directions, um, um, showcase some of our regulators' key uh, development. So with the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, last year they issued the three key measures uh, to support green finance. Um, and um, one is um, they issued the three phases approach in driving green and sustainable banking. Secondly, is to support the uh, responsible investment in managing the Hong Kong Exchange Traded Fund. Uh, lastly, is to set out a center of green finance to provide capacity building in the market. And this year, we have uh, just seen the white paper come out, and my uh, green, and green Banking Working Group is working closely with the authority in driving uh, that. 
Now, over to the SFC, um, they issued a strategy framework for green finance back in 2018. And last year, the asset owner surveys came out um, with a positive result. And this year, they set up the Climate Change Technical Task Force um, to really um, um, try to get the industry uh, feedback um, from the asset owner, asset manager in in the preparations of uh, what's to come next from the SFC side. Now, um, at the stock exchange, so the ESG guide and listing rule have been amended to improve the ESG governance and disclosure. And since 1st of July this year, all listed companies are required mandatory ESG reporting. Now, um, also want to highlight um, the cross-agency steering group committees being set up, um, established this year. This is a cross-agency between the FSTB, the Financial Services Treasury Bureau, the Environmental Bureau, and five regulators, so our monetary authorities, the exchange FSC, um, and insurance authority together with um, um, the pensions authorities. So this is the first time that we've seen cross-agency um, committee being established to really look into um, um, the green and sustainable finance space. Now, before I move on to the markets, of course, everyone heard about China presidency announcement on China will peak its carbon emissions by 2030 and be carbon neutral before 2060. As everyone knows, China accounted for over a quarter of the world's carbon emissions right now. So to achieve net zero, it will require huge capital inflow to fund that, and in addition to strong green and sustainable finance policy implementations. And Hong Kong, as one of the world's international finance hub, we are in the best position to help channel green finance and to develop the right ESG uh, products to allow international investors to access to the China market. With that, let me just um, highlight a few things um, about the recent market developments uh, here, this side of the world. So in the bond market, like um, I guess like everywhere else um, in the green and sustainable finance space, bond market is the most well-developed and so as in Hong Kong. So as of 2019, End of 2019, total green bond issuance and a range in Hong Kong total 26 billion uh, USD. And the Hong Kong government issued the first green bond last year at $1 billion, which was four times oversubscribed. And the government further announced this e to issue another 66 billion Hong Kong dollar green bonds over the next five years. Also to highlight that um, we have two um, green bond incentives locally um, to encourage, encourage green bond issuance in Hong Kong. One is the pilot bond program, the other one is the green bond grant scheme, where basically the green bond certification fee and the insurance cost is being uh, subsidized by the government. Now, over to the long side of um, 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 moving away from the bonds. So we have seen strong green loan growth since 2018 and the birth of the sustainability loans, which I'm a big fan of. A great product to facilitate climate transitions. That's my opinion. Um, last but not least, back to today's topic on green and ESG funds. So currently, there are around 30 um, SFC um, um, authorized green and ESG funds in Hong Kong. We have seen ESG funds outperform by 3 to 6% compared to the standard benchmarking during the period of COVID-19 globally and increasing investor demands in the ESG fund space locally. 
And there are, of course, other products emerging, like the transition bond that was issued this year by a Hong Kong energy company, CLP, to fund the um, plants um, uh, to facilitate a better fuel mix as part of the Hong Kong strategy in moving to a lower carbon economy. And of course, um, other products like green asset-backed security, etc. So innovative green and sustainable finance product is my favorite topic and happy to talk about it whole day long. But I promise Ian that I will leave him some time to talk about the fund structure. So I will stop here now and over back to you, Andy. <laughs> well, we always like to leave in a little bit of time to talk about fund structure. Um, that's really interesting, Tracy. I mean, and it's like some amazing developments there in talking about the pace of change and, and, the, and the sheer scale of what's, what's occurring in Hong Kong. You know, it's across the board. It's amazing to come, you know, to, come to Hong Kong and see it and, and, be, 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 um, and, and see it firsthand. So, Ian, probably you're, you're going to get the question. I, first, I think we've teed you up there. But So that's the views of two protagonists there. I've said this is amazing, green finance. Wow. Um, isn't it big? Isn't it marvellous? And Tracy, I think, has also you know, echoed the, those thoughts. So cheerleading in this space but rather i'd like to come to each of you in turn obviously we'll come to ian first let's just take a let's stop drinking the kool-aid perhaps let's just take a, a stock take and just find out what's the actuality of the development of green and sustainable finance i mean at the moment it seems like i can't open or open my screen without a, a, an esg event sort of email or flyer or something like that and sustainability but you know okay so that's the the sort of the, the rhetoric, as it were. What's the reality from your from your view? Here? Yeah, no, no. So you're you're right. I, I think at a strategic level, um, <clears throat> there's a huge amount of buy-in, um, and it's super encouraging. And this is from uh, both the market players and the policymakers. So so that's great. But I think um, for quite obvious reasons, there's the transmission mechanism between that and implementation, the actual tactical side. Um, yeah, that that takes time, and that's natural. If you're the CEO of a, an asset manager. Manager, you're obviously going to set aspirational targets and develop the strategy, and that doesn't mean that everyone in the firm is, is going to change their investment strategies the, the very next day. So I think there is a bit of a gap. Um, I think it's you know it, it, it's there for obvious reasons. I think the other thing is that the there are quite a lot of differences. Um, the regional differences, differences between sectors, differences between investment strategies and, and asset classes, and even within organizations and um, as you know Andy I, I used to work for the UN and the UN was one of the conveners of the sustainable development goals the, the Paris agreement of climate change falls under a UN convention but if you went and, and looked at the composition of the UN pension fund um, it's sadly a, a very different story similarly if you talk to insurers I always think this is very interesting on the the liability side there's some of the most advanced sophisticated people in terms of understanding um, physical risk. If you quite literally cross the corridor or onto the asset side, um, more often than not, they're not integrating any of this this knowledge or, or this thinking. And similarly, regionally, all I talking about opening your emails, all I read about is sort of nature-based solutions um, coming out of Europe and North America. And I don't think that's quite as pronounced in this part of the world. Whereas in this part of the world, transition risk. You know, we, we've got a huge amount of the energy system that's. Um, dominated by coal at the moment or, or fueled by coal. And so transition risk and transition finance is, is an issue that you might not hear as much about. Um, but maybe digging down to a, a more granular level, I think one of the problems this industry um, needs to grapple with is we tend to bucket so much into this term green or sustainable financing. And I think there are, there are two fundamental questions we need to ask ourselves. So 
The first, and I think this was the dominant question of the last decade, is does sustainability improve financial performance? And Tracy just gave you some numbers there for, for performance over the COVID period, but, but I think there's an increasing body of evidence to show that risk-adjusted returns you know, in general, um, in some asset classes, in some situations, do um, improve risk-adjusted returns or at least don't damage them. I think the second question that, that gets lumped together, which is a very different question, is does sustainable finance impact the real world? Um, and I personally think this is going to be the dominant question of this coming decade. And quite often we, we talk about flows which are measured in the tens of trillions and we talk about double-digit growth. Um, and what we're often talking about is um, financial market investments. We're talking about listed securities. Uh, and then we talk about targets like the SDG financing gap or, or national goals for climate change finance. And what we really need is investment into real assets on the ground. And, and they're two quite different things. And we were talking just before we went live about an article in the FT. And I, I think the gentleman that wrote the article was the, the CIO of HSB Asset Management. And his analogy was to this difference between um, public and private markets or, or listed versus unlisted is if you buy a secondhand Honda Civic, you're not financing Honda. And I think often we, we conflate the two. Um, and I think it's very, very important that we, we strip those out. But I think we're doing very well on the first question. And the second question is where we need to um, focus an awful lot over the next decade if we're going to avoid all the sort of catastrophic things and existential threats we, we read about. So on that cheerful note, I'll pass back to you, Andy. Uplifting, uplifting morning for me over here, then. Now, Kate, um, <laughs> the lack of integration, uh, is there a real-world impact? Or, you know, what are the returns? Is you know, it's a bit of a mismatch. Is that what your clients, what you're seeing from, you know, from Asia's perspective? You know, you're head of ESG funds, so presumably there must be a, a demand for it there. What's, what's your views? Yeah, so um, I think I was echo what Ian's saying. So there's huge momentum. Um, I think that I would say it's been a scramble really over the last year um, in of the finance industry really kind of scaling up to be able to support clients or to drive ESG integration. Um, the impact and the thematic investing hasn't caught up the same degree over here in Asia yet, but um, definitely the signals the conversation is all very positive, but I think we just need to sort of have a, a sobering conversation around the, the levels of actual implementation. And in 2018, um, it, uh, Bain and Company found that only about 13% of Asian asset managers were actually even integrating ESG. We've probably moved a little bit um, further along since 2018. Um, when, it, when if we look at investors, which are generally considered one of the main driving forces um, of ESG um, investing, we haven't had the same force in Asia as we've had maybe in Europe and the US from um, investors really driving change. Um, so I think we've started to see that happening more now. So if we think about big asset owners in Asia like um, GPIF, Japan Post, HKMA, um, these these entities have all become signatories to the PRI, signaling their commitments in, in recent years. Um, and definitely the investors are starting to demand that. But it's going to take a while, trickle-on effect, to come down the line and actually start seeing real impact on, on the industry here. 
Um, so yeah, so in terms of actual practical experience for us at Asia, um, we do see this as um, something that is, is growing uh, and we already have a number of funds that we're working with um, which are actually impact investing. Um, but we are, but we're out there, and so we've actually gone out and hired um, a, a head of ESG and impact advisory, so that we can actually start assisting clients on this journey. Because more than anything, I feel that actually supporting the industry, contributing to knowledge, contributing to thought leadership, helping each other up the curve is going to be so critical for um, for Asia to be there sooner rather than later. So thanks, guys. And before I move on to Ian, just uh, just make, make viewers be aware, we, Kate has frozen, but we can hear her. So, and since she's frozen, oh right, in, sorry about that. Hopefully, in an odd, I'm not sure because it's a, it's a lovely, lovely green frame. So uh, there's no movement <laughs> or anything like that. Um, but uh, some some really good points there. So de developing there, um, uh, the, the, the points that Kate made, and looking to hire up to, to build out for the, the future demand. If I come to you, Kevin, now obviously uh, sort of in, in uh, over the, over this side of the uh, the time zone, um, what's your views on this point? Is it something that uh, you know the rhetoric and reality mismatch? You've been with us on the the green finance journey in Guernsey for the last few years. Sure. Um, thank you for that, Andy. Yeah, I mean, sustainable investment is at the forefront of all conversations and all news at the moment in both Guernsey and the UK, um, and is, is really kind of driving forwards. I think it, a factor for Guernsey, it's really important to remember that Guernsey has been involved with sustainable investment for the last 10 years and particularly on the, on the fun side of things so pe and sustainable investment is is part of our kind of core history there but over the last few years and you gave an introduction to start with there about guernsey green finance we've really decided that as a jurisdiction and a Korean as a service provider as well to to drive forwards and push guernsey as a as a leading jurisdiction in the sustainable investments. Um, so we formed Guernsey Green Finance. We formed the, the first regulated uh, green funds uh, in the world uh, in 2018. Uh, a very simple product just to, with regulated backing to enable investors to know that they, that they are investing in a fund that is sustainable. And uh, there's no element of, of greenwashing there. Uh, but, but since then, we've, we've been creating in Guernsey a whole kind of ecosystem around there. So for the International Stock Exchange, we created uh, a green sector of, on, on there. And we've now been moving into kind of uh, uh, exploring that e ecosystem further with green insurance, green bonds and, and green loans, everything around this market to kind of get Guernsey in a position to uh, deal with the demand that we see over, over the next few years. Um, and obviously, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fund administrator, and what we've seen, we have this past history of dealing with sustainable investments. So our existing managers are continuing to kind of uh, launch fund, funds and green funds within Guernsey. But we're seeing now, uh, after kind of the launch of the green fund, that there's, uh, there's an increasing trend from an increasing pipeline of, of new business looking to come into Guernsey. And, and this is from a wide variety of jurisdictions as well. So it's not just our traditional kind of UK markets, it's from Europe, it's from Asia. So there's a wide variation there. And particularly we're seeing kind of uh, 
new fund managers wanting to kind of uh, have have the green fund accreditation uh, for their fundraisers, uh, it, it's, it's particularly useful for them in attracting kind of new investors, as as, as we discussed earlier. So we're definitely seeing it's definitely at the forefront we're definitely seeing uh we're definitely seeing an increase in business and guernsey is really trying to push forward to kind of develop this further uh is there more to do yes yes definitely uh we, we can all do more but the kind of like the, the building foundations are there and it's there it's there to grow uh, good points, and I think I think we'll find that, uh, that the manager of that very, uh, that first fund is uh, is joining us today from Hong Kong. Congratulations, Ian. <laughs> um, so lo lots of things happening there. Conversations and client Casey in demand there. You know, Ian's talking about you know uh, increasing demand. You know, catching up with the reality there. If I come back to, if I'd like to uh, just again but maybe a bit more grounded type of conversation we're here to cheerlead etc but what i'm also here is to explain uh, and learn if i ask you a conversation i'm going to mimic a conversation that i had in june um and we had divya shashami who's general partner of Greensteer, head of the uk government's net zero um for uh, or the private sector net zero program for one of the UK government departments, and we were having a conversation about risk and return, and the debate was, you know, which which was you know, which was prima into Paris, um, and we we, we 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 sort of formed a consensus view back then. But I would just take the temperature. What specifically do you believe is is actually driving capital in this space? We're all talking about the rhetoric and the and the sort of cheerleading, but actually, in investors' mind, what's what do you think is the actually making that that capital move from A to B into climate change mitigation projects? I'll ask Ian first. Come to I think Tracy I haven't heard from you for a while, and then and then I'll come back to Kate. So far away. Ian. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I think there's. Um... I think at the moment it's, it's a bit more, if we're talking in generic terms, and, and just to caveat this, as I said earlier, we're seeing substantial nuances across regions, asset classes, investment strategies, et cetera. But I think at a generic level, um, for the, the the bulk of the market, at the moment, I think it's it's a compliance story, it's a, it's a herd story, it's a, it's a fear of missing out, it's the sort of the Larry Fink effect. Um, I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think sentiments can be quite volatile so in this part of the world what was quite interesting is when we had the bushfires in january in australia the, the conversations um around climate change became quite pronounced similarly when we had the the rio tinto scandal whenever it was in, in august maybe um conversations about governance um became more pronounced so uh, i i'm saying this but there is a, a small cohort of investors that, that really see the value and they tend to be the more sophisticated one and maybe i can illustrate this with a study which i think is a few years old now but it's by a harvard business school professor called george seraphim who's, who's quite a well-known um academic and actually practitioner i think i think he sits on several fund advisory boards and what they did was quite interesting they, they were trying to understand if sustainability generated alpha in a statistically significant way. And they took, I think, two decades worth of, of data, and then uh, I'll be able to forward you the actual study afterwards. And so don't call me over the coals if I get some of these wrong. But it, it was a substantial data. These conversations are fascinating, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. The point being, if you just looked at, at sustainability as, as something that was generic, um, there was a tiny bit of alpha, but it was statistically insignificant. If you 
um, reran the study, but you use the sort of the SASB materiality framework. So, i.e., accepting that sustainability in one sector means something very, very different to sustainability in, in, in another. Um, there was substantial outperformance of sort of four to, to 500 basis points. I think what we are seeing is that, that the market leaders are people that, that understand this, that there is actually meaningful long-term value creation embedded in, in just being able to use more data rather than less data. I think I sent you an email earlier talking about this Ocean Toma report, which looks at the proportion of market indices um, and the value of, of tangible versus intangible assets. Um, now, 90% of the S&P 500 is, 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 is based on the value of intangible assets. Yeah, this is a very, very different mentality to people brought up during that sort of strong quantitative Chicago school mentality um, that was prevalent you know, 20 or, or, or 30 years ago. So, cut long story short, I think at the moment, in the short term, it's a, it's a bit of a herd mentality. I think people are more worried about the risk agenda. There are market leaders who see the opportunity. I think that's going to change over the medium to long term, but I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, so again, Chicago School, uh, you, you were watching Gillian talking about uh, uh, Freeman's 50th the, the other day, perhaps, but, but it's, it just seems to be coming back and people's references by that. But you were, you were talking about returns, Tracy and Alpha. Tracy, you, you mentioned earlier uh, about returns during COVID. So you know, is it returns or is it risk? Is it, you know, you're talking about the reporting for through TCFD and, you know, Hong Kong and Asia have been at the forefront of that. Risk return, what do you see in terms of uh, the main drivers? So risk and, risk and return go hands in hand. You can't look at one-sided, right? So, you know, you change your risk, you change your return, you change your return, you change affect your risk, right? So I, I guess from my view is the increase of awareness of climate risk is a key source of financial risk. I mean, like I mentioned earlier from the regulatory policy space, the establishment of the NGFS with, you know, 60, close to 60 central banks sitting together to really look at, um, you know, how climate risk impact the financial risk. So that side from the policy front, and at the same time, the increased awareness in addition, I mean, also at the market as well, not just at the regulatory level, at the market, the investor, you know, looking at this and how do I, how do I look at how climate risk affects my portfolio? You know, am I pricing it right? You know, and um, is my risk right? So I think it's the in, like the general increase of awareness of this is is driving both sides, and again, also the awareness of the huge uh, opportunities and demands in in the market space as well. I think it's it's kind of a mixture of a cross, and, and and we can't just look at one side return or risk. I think it's definitely both. Yes, I. I... I, agree. I think I do refer to Divya. She gave me a bit of an ear bashing for sort of making it, dumbing it down to such a, a, a basic question as an alternative there. But Kate, in terms of uh, you know what Tracy just said there, there's you know the two sides of the same coin. From your client perspective, um, what's, what's what's driving what's driving their interest? Um, I think it totally changes on geography um, sector. Um, my general feeling is that this. Is we're almost like at this perfect storm, excuse the analogy, um, kind of moment where you've got actual visible changes happening to the physical environment and people becoming increasingly aware of that. You've got governments stepping up to, you know, uh, to huge degrees, drawing um, awareness themselves. 
this direction of travel is becoming so evident that for anyone to think that it's going to suddenly stop at any point, it's become, you know, it's inconceivable really that that's going to happen. So with that, you know, we're, we are, it's driven to think about the long term, where is this going? And I think it's become very clear to everyone that sitting back and doing nothing is just really not an option. Um, so then it's down to a question of how quickly, how to get started um, in China. So you talked about um, what happened in China recently and that, you know, they had an explosion of green bonds over there. Um, well, you know, the 13 five-year plan um, laid out by the Chinese government was to drive the green financial sector. And over there, with the middle orders top-down approach from government, um, that is extremely effective, and they were able to stimulate a green bond market from almost thin air. And now that doesn't necessarily work in every other country, so and um, every other jurisdiction. Um, just looking um, at Hong Kong, for example, um, I do think that definitely so this isn't necessarily government private sector regulation has had a huge impact, and actually that's what we're most reliant on for for bringing us up to to where we are now. Um, I do think regulators stepping in the threat of new regulation stepping in is is also something that's on people's minds so the sfc just sort of bring this back to funds again have obviously already brought out um some guidance around this it's very it's specific to the retail um fund sector at the moment but you know it wouldn't be surprising from my perspective to start seeing that being brought out over time and, and one of the key themes disclosure, um, particularly climate-related disclosure. So what risks are your, um, is your portfolio exposed to? Um, going on in Australia right now, where a pension superannuation fund is, um, you know, under the hammer in court at the moment for failing to disclose and take into a climate change risk. So I think um, this is so much here um, that mm -hmm. it's, it's the kind of the volume, the noise, um, and just the general direction of travel that's really going to be driving um, change and, and forcing managers to think about it. And um, and, it, and, and that is really happening. Okay. Um, you, you make a really good point there about the, about that regional uh, differences and about you know, the, the, the top-down approach um, in Asia uh, that was possible. And well, you know, one of the learnings, the point of us having this conversation today you know, across continents is to sort of see if there are any heterogeneities coming across. Um, before I do uh, flag that over to Kevin, I'm going to just flag that there are questions uh, you know, on your widget um, that you are able for the, for the, for the viewers to, to, to sort of pose to, and we do get time, I'll be asking some of those towards the end of the session, and we have had them some coming through, um, so some of you have been aware of it. But coming back to that question, Kevin, I want to move probably, possibly with respect to time, maybe move it along a little bit there. Um, Kate made a good point about uh, the, the different factors driving, um, driving things in terms of uh, information reporting, disclosures, different standards. From your sort of global administrator perspective, I'll ask you a couple of questions here. You know, do you see um, uh, any differences in the, the needs for different uh, for servicing different regional markets, maybe US straight old compared to European, compared to Asian? And you know, in terms of all of the the reporting, you know, what sort of products uh, do you think is going to be required in this space, given that? Um, small board of issues that Kate only just alluded to. Yeah, sure. I mean, reporting is a whole topic we could go on for for a long time, and it's a an increasing area we as fund administrators are, are being asked to 
provide guidance on. So um, over the last few years, reporting clients have been sort of doing bigger and larger sort of ESG reporting for their funds and wanting more and more guidance on how, how they should complete that. And so there is there's so many different kind of taxonomies and principles out there that it is it, it, it's difficult to, to kind of um, and different for each region. So it's really difficult for the investors themselves uh, to know and to get kind of a clear picture of what's going on across countries, across funds and across different regions. Um, it, it's difficult. It, it is a difficult kind of uh, a point there. Um, we as we as the administrators do our best to kind of work through and and help out. But there really is a need to try and pull these different taxonomies and these different reporting requirements together uh, and to kind of align them as much as as, as much as feasibly possible. Um, and the quicker, the better. Hmm. Uh, Tracy, I mean, do you share that concern? Can, uh, I, just, we, uh... can I ask a quick question? Okay. Yeah, no, I was just going to ask because the the, um, the big four accounting firms have just um, come together to try and align on a new um, reporting standard. I just wanted to see if anyone had any views on yeah. on the uptake of that how acceptable that will be to the market. Well, yeah, and to, and to, to that point, to tee that up to Tracy in terms of that small score. Is one obviously Hong Kong and Guernsey are both involved in the IOSCO uh, approach, standardised securities uh, reporting in, in the sustainable space. You've got TCFD. You actually have the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. And yes, you're absolutely right, Kate. You've got the the, you know, the, the big four coming together to create another one. Um, there's a small score. Do you, do you, at some point, uh, there's going to be a, a convergence. So are we there yet, Tracy? So well, let me. There's a lot of questions there. So let me put it this yeah, way: sorry. Is the current state of <laughs> is the current state of taxonomy from around the world a recipe for confusion? Yes. Would a more standardized uh, taxonomy accept globally across, like you know, would help? Of course. So I guess from my view is I'm a big supporter of the current China EU taxonomy harmonization te technical task force. And I think it would be extremely impactful if China and EU can achieve, um, you know, some sort of um, um, harmonization between the two. And um, the rest of the world will certainly benefit from it. But then I guess um, we also have to be mindful about the uh, different curve of uh, the depends where you are in the country and, and you know, in this uh, journey. So I think we need to be mindful about the local um, 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 subtlety, you know, in, in, in that sense as well. Yeah. Ian, have you got a particular views on this topic? Um, I don't think I can add anything that's particularly um, constructive, other than a comment that I think we get we get very agitated for for quite justifiable reasons. But I think it's important to remember that on the financial accounting side, um, gap took probably sixty to, to seventy years to settle. So uh, I, I think we've got to have slightly more realistic. Um, We've got to be slightly more realistic about how long. I mean, this is an incredibly complex space, and it it brings in issues of sort of philosophy and morals, and it's not going to be so. It's not going to be solved overnight. So, um, I think there are, there are brighter minds than mine. And, uh, well, um, I, I couldn't possibly comment on, on, on that, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's come back, 
<laughs> yeah, I'm not asking Kate to opine on the quality of your mind, but Kate, uh, have you got a view on the question you posed? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I had commented the other day that it's alphabet, you know, pea soup, that it's just a, it's such a, a mix out there at the moment, and it's hard to be able to compare um, apples and, you know, you feel like you're comparing apples and oranges at times, but I would also say that this is not really, um a lot of the standards that you see from the standards, they don't tend to be 100% reinventing the wheel. They depend on what has for. So I know that when you did your um, the Guernsey um, Green um, Fund certification, it wasn't a starting from scratch. It was looking at, you know, comparing what the IFC standards were, principles were, et cetera, et cetera. And when KPMG and the other um, big three accounting firms came together, again, they weren't reinventing the wheel. They were drawing on um, existing standards that are already out there. So I think that shows that we've already made progress settling on something that so we've got better comparability. Um, but at the same time, it's still helping this drive for data and this drive for information. Um, you know, as Ian says, I mean, it could take a while to get there. I mean, I think the other important point around that is that we've got to remember that different countries are at different stages of development. And there's been at the um, international level, this discussion of inequity around um, sustainable development and understanding that obviously developed countries have already contributed hugely to um, the amount of um, fossil fuels that have been released and, and other countries are coming uh, development. So imposing on them a tax like in the EU, which is potentially setting a, a very high bar, um, could actually hinder progress. So I think we need to be careful about that and, and take into account different country factors. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I... Personally, if I may just agree with that point, thank you for mentioning the, um, the Guernsey Green Fund. I've also been one of the people that was involved in its design and development. It was done deliberately um, to make things as simple and straightforward as possible. Um, but, you know, given the confusion in this space, and we did go out, we didn't try and reinvent the wheel, and we did look to uh, common international standards. Uh, we used, you know, the ones that existed at the time were those from the International Consortium of Development Banks, and it's a list of it's a 12 pages long, uh, the actual classification of the assets. Uh, and even that was deemed to be too complicated for some people. And But you look at the taxonomy, the EU taxonomy today, the latest version is three, five, four hundred pages long. And then you, you know, they've got the regulatory technical standards to come. And then, you know, before you know it, uh, you know, you're sort of, um, sort of there's an avalanche uh, of standards and rules uh, and, and requirements to sort of uh, keep, keep up with. So we're very, you know, in, 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 um, in terms of keeping it simple, I'm very much a uh, sort of supporter of that old uh, four-letter acronym. Um, and actually, in terms of simplicity, I think uh, I'm gonna, we, we did sort of go through some of the questions beforehand. I, I, obviously, we prepared for this, and I think I've, I've something that won't be coming as a surprise to people to, uh, to raise. Is there, um, you know, is there anything we could learn from the success of the bond market in this space for, for the fund sector? You know, we're, we're very much looking here today in terms of fund, hopefully looking at fund structuring, how you bring capital into investments. Ian referred to the, uh, the FT article from um, the chat from HSBC, fix, Fixed Income, talking about raising financing. But the green bond market has been the success to date. And I suppose in terms of the structuring, in terms of funds, 
we're looking to replicate that success. Tracy, I may maybe come to you. You know, do you do you think there are particular learnings that we should keep get on board as we we enter this very confusing decade coming up? So I guess going back to your point earlier on disclosures and reporting in the in the bond market, I guess I just quote some statistics. So 100% um, of the green bond issuance in Hong Kong have at least one type of external reviewer. 81% of the Hong Kong green bond carry post issue, issuance disclosure. So this demonstrates the importance of the disclosure and reporting, which provide transparencies and contribute to the market in, in, in integrity against the greenwash. So I guess other product segments like loans of funds can certainly benefit from, from, from the same. Okay, so that third, that third party uh, confirmation, that verification, uh, Kate, Ian, and maybe uh, Kevin, do you think that's something um, that's, uh, that's important for us over here? Uh, sorry. Yes. Oh, sorry. 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 So yeah, it's Kevin. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Third-party verification is absolutely important and essential, and a key part of uh, the green the green fund product, and should be a part of all, of all products. It gives the investors the the kind of confidence that the assets and everything is is doing as, as it should be. Um, so, totally agree on on, on that aspect. Kate, do you and actually, Andy King. Sorry. Sorry. Good Sorry, Ian, go on, Ian. I was just going to say, um, I mean, relating to your question, what can we learn? Uh, I think an interesting observation actually relates to the, the, the process. If you go back to the, the dawn of time um, when whoever it was, the EIB or the EBRD, did the first green button, um, we basically had a bunch of development banks putting out um, demonstration products into the market. They were bought by a few sort of forward-thinking investors. Um, that kind of built up. Then we had a bit of policy intervention. We had a few frameworks. Of, you know, the boundary conditions were kind of laid down. Um, then market organizations were, were sort of accelerating the process. But the point was the the process, in my mind, was was pretty important. And I'll just give you a quick anecdote here, just to illustrate, I think, at times how differently stakeholders think. So it's a bit of a strange one, but I think it illustrates the point quite well. In my former job, we, we were trying to understand how different communities of people understood palm oil. And, and bizarrely, um, a guy in, in the team that's a very good programmer built a, built a machine that could scrub Twitter. And we were trying to understand what the adjective was that was used when someone was, was getting upset about palm oil and, and tropical deforestation on Twitter. Anyway, so we divided a couple of categories of, of words. And one were the NGOs who were trying to quite rightly improve the practices of the private sector. And then we did the same thing with the the private sector. Um, and the point was the highest frequency words from the NGOs, I think were, was actually orangutan, then it was trees and deforestation, et cetera, et cetera. The private sector was was actually derivatives, as in palm oil derivatives, but then it was profit, supply chain. And, and the point is with sustainability, we're, we're bringing together very, very important stakeholders that traditionally in finance weren't working together. And I think something we, we, we need to really focus on is, is that trying to ensure that we speak a common language and common understanding is, is super important. And I personally think that this notion of focusing on the process as well as the, the content is actually a really important lesson from the Green Bond story. You know, and then this is where the international organizations are super important in, in sort of providing that neutral platform to um, convene those players. 
<laughs> so, okay, and did you did you have any? I'm conscious of time, actually. So, did you have anything you wanted to add to that point, or shall I very quickly move on? And I just wanted to talk about um, funds and structuring. Is there, you know, Ian's alluded to this here, talking about simplicity. You know, that was that is probably key key within this. Is there? Is there anything that you think that you can bring in terms of that structuring sort of angle in terms of the fund sector that we, we can, um, that is, it, is it going to be particularly important to this space? After all, you know, being head of ESG, what's the, what's the, what's the main sort of uh, thought process to how you would to structure something? Well, necessarily have to be, you know, we're not, again, we're not sort of reinventing the wheel. So with the fund structure, it can look very much like a fund structure that we're, you know, we're used to. Um, but generally, it's about layering on these additional components. So for example, if we're looking at impact, then thinking about KPIs, how do you determine that? I mean, it's working with clients to make sure what those set of statements that we make um, and not falling into that category of greenwashing, that this is something that um, can be developed um, against essentially how we're, you know, how they're going to portray that. So a lot of the advice to date has been around that. It's also been helping clients um, uh, become signatories to the PRI, get, uh, you know, helping them along with that process. Um, I do think that there are definitely more technical areas. So, for example, uh, we've just started conversations um, with the bank and, you know, about how to develop their um, sustainability-linked loans. Um, again, obviously, this is a product that's already on the market. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, actually another area, obviously, for um, for interesting structures in, is in the area of blended finance uh, when we're kind of bringing together the um, say a development bank and private equity um, and so there's definitely areas for innovation but if you're talking about purely just the structure of the fund um, you know I haven't we haven't seen sort of huge changes there because I think it's you know they well um, but it's yeah it's the it's the quite slight tweak so mm. green bonds linked loans sustainability linked bonds and it's now looking at you know what are you going to deliver um, alongside um, your fund so again to put words into your mouth because I'm, I'm too conscious of time and there's a fair few questions and a lot of them are all coming through with the very same similar feedback which I'll come to in, in a second but to, to sort of summarize your point there um, the underlying, you know, structuring of the, the, the product and services, it, it, it doesn't change. The, 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 it, you know, it does what it says on tin. What's important is the overlay of the reporting um, and then the accreditation and the transparency of the investments flowing into what they are. So, uh, and, and again, if, if I may, sort of that is summarising that sort of a very simple learning from across the bond market where those simplicity, simple principles are, apply. So that... That, um, that reporting yeah, so the drafting uh, itself can get technical, but the structure itself is not necessarily, you know, sort of uh, something radically different from what we're used to. Sure. And I, and I, I sort of flip that sort of that reporting question I'm going to come to Kevin and then to, to Tracy on this. Um, we've talked about green, we've talked about the, the verification of green assets, the reporting, the disclosure standards, and a lot of the questions that are coming in um, from Justin Chung, uh, Aman Gupta, similar questions, are talking about ESG reporting. 
and that uh, which is potentially a, a different data set it's not the same it's similar there might be convergence and the questions are you know are the the, the same principles apply um how, how is this working do you see uh, this creating a whole you know a, a further layer of, of reporting requirements and how, how do the how does that tie into the green agenda in, in fact you know green sustainable esg you know, how much reporting and, and disclosures um, you know, can, can we uh, can we incorporate? Uh, you know, as one said, somebody actually asked the question. You know, are we, are we seeing this being insourced, being outsourced? How you know how do how do we report all of this stuff? Um, Kevin, I think that's probably lends itself immediately to administrator. But then Tracy, I'd like to come to you from that sort of general point about how all of these different agendas and reporting requirements you see you know, coming together. So Kevin, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, we're seeing a trend in the ESG reporting of the increased length and volume and depth of what is what is required in there. But it's more of a kind of at the moment, it's more of a kind of a choice from the individual kind of managers of what they're kind of including within those within those reports. So there's almost a race to kind of have the what we're seeing is over the last few years of an increase from an ESG report that was a couple of pages in a fund to some that are now sort of 20, 20, 30 pages within the annual report or, or a separate report. So it's an increase, but um, it's it's an increase in words, but not necessarily the quality of, of kind of content. So it really needs to be, as we, as we kind of mentioned before, that although the reporting is, is subjective, it really needs some kind of like uh, bringing together and standardizations in, in some ways. Uh, we as third party administrators obviously on the governance side of things we we take a close kind of look at that and and part of our role is to ensure funds are, are adhering to their policies and objectives and we we do guide uh, clients on 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 the requirements of their esg esg reporting uh, certainly we have seen uh, an outsourcing of the whole ESG reporting function to specialist third-party providers outside of administrators. So that's an increasing trend. We have we have a number in Guernsey. Just to, just to mention Guernsey, we have quite a few sort of specialist providers who, who actually provide that function, and that's where and and obviously the benefit of that is for that certain funds don't have to bring those specialist those specialists in-house and can rely on others outside to, to do those reporting. Um, yeah, so... I think it, sorry. Sorry? No, I was just going to say, so do you... Because I mean, one big thing that I'm seeing is the, you know, particularly in the private equity space, is now managers going out and requiring portfolio companies to provide this information, which... Is usually quite a huge undertaking, but that is obviously they need that if they're going to be able to report. So I think the on the innovation side, we are seeing new ways, um, and definitely administrators playing quite a key role in this. And in terms of, in terms of gathering together that information uh, and yeah. and using technology to do that in a, a more efficient man management. Yeah, and I mean, and, and we... Kevin, I'm going to stop you there because I just want to bring it back to Tracy because we are about to run out of time. So apologies. <laughs> just as the conversation is getting going, we're crying out loud, you know, here we go. We did say that we were going yeah, to be, so, you know, spend all, all the rest of the day talking about this. Yeah, so I guess I, I, I share the same... 
Yeah, I, I guess I share the same um, observation with uh, both Kevin and Kate. I mean, over the time, uh, you know, how ESG from kickboxing to uh, to the increase in debt and to regulators stepping in, like I mentioned, some mandatory ESG reporting that require a governance, you know, disclosure level. And to what Kate is saying that, you know, we have seen a new uh, company coming into this space, like technology, how to use a technology company like AIs, like scrubbing through data on looking through the ESG um, um, data to make it make sense and make it meaningful. So I share both of um, um, Kevin's and Kate's point. And I also want to add, going back to Kate's point earlier on about structuring and, you know, from the product development's point of view, I see it very similar. You know, we have a lot of well-developed financial products already in the market. Now, going into the green and sustainable finance space is really that over layer of, you know, how do you quantify the green and the, you know, KPI on the environmental social front to overlaying using existing products. So it's not that, you know, it's, 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 it's just that. It's not that difficult to you know it's not with developing another completely new products you know so that's my point and i really share the points uh, kate mentioned earlier and Ian, I'm incredibly we've got you coming down to i think we're almost giving you last but one word is that uh, from from the manager's oh, perspective do you share the, the those concerns sort of you know with regard to the, the explosion of what is a reporting requirements or what should be I learned from one sort of lesson from this conversation is the need to keep things simple. Yeah, no, no, you're right. And um, I think the teething problems, are, I think the points we made by, by Tracy and, and Kevin that things will be digitized. Um, uh, maybe just one other point to note that certainly one school of thought is, is take all this ESG data and, and use that to, to generate value. But there's actually another quite interesting school of thought because if you look at ESG data, there's a massive bias to market cap, i.e. the bigger companies have more resources to, to fill in all this stuff. And there's actually quite an in interesting sort of school of thought that there's a whole mid-cap section where there's a lot of untapped value. And an example is, is the people that create solutions for the climate change problem. So Andy, you may be running in your garden shed a, a, a widget company that drastically reduces water use or whatever it is. And you might be a three-person band that doesn't have the resources to churn out data and report to all the various industries. But tapping into all the themes we were talking about earlier about the things that are driving this market, you might have the solution um, at, your, at your fingertips. So I, th I think what it comes around to is actually a slightly different skill set um, you know, you really need people not just with the financial skills, but also some of the technical skills that can understand um, this space. And one of the themes we're starting to see is new configurations of partnerships with funds. I'm, I'm not sure if you saw in the, the FT, um, Pollination actually joined, which is a, arguably a project developer, a bunch of lawyers, a bunch of consultants, joined forces with HSB Asset Management. One of the trends we're seeing in the private market impact space is NGOs and international organizations joining forces with private sector investment managers. So I think, you know, yes, ESG data is important, but I think there are also a whole bunch of examples that, that just show that we, we need a different skill set going forward if we're to address this problem because it, it kind of sets the boundary conditions, but it's not the answer to everything. Yeah. A, a, a very sober point to end on. And in fact, thank you very much, Ian. Um, well, it's quite encouraging. It's it, value. 
Yes, we learned, we learned one thing the other week that we had a two-hour webinar, part A and a part B, and I feel that we've just done the first hour lending itself to <laughs> into what was in part B, talking about so many of these things in, in, a, in another layer of depth. Um, it'd be a shameless plug, but <clears throat> you refer to those points about that co-investment in different structures. Um, so I'll, I'll point the viewers towards our own website, the Guernsey Finance website here, where we published a report making waves, uh, talking about the, the three key thematics that we drew out of our uh, Sustainable Finance Week in June, one of which was that sort of development of co-investment and, and the need for new co-investment structures. We haven't got, had time today to, to get into the more of the private equity side, which would have been very interesting, again, in its own right. And we had Guy uh, joining us a couple of weeks back. And um, we've uh, also published some green private equity principles in the need to keep things simple um, for that industry there. And on the day that it's the best of the BVCA, uh, second day of their uh, 2020 uh, uh, conference today, and uh, we've got Mark, there's Mark Kearney being, being interviewed in the hashtag race to zero. It would be nice to be seeing some new commitments to uh, carbon neutrality by the PE, um, by the PE industry. In fact, we'd be, we would happily cheerlead that as Guernsey Green Finance and Guernsey would be tweeting about it later. But in that respect, I'm sort of pretty much out of time. Uh, I will do a f final shameless plug. Follow Guernsey Finance, Guernsey Green Finance on Twitter, hashtag GSY Green Finance, or uh, <clears throat> Come to our website. We have a series of podcasts where uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, that you, there's more information to have soon to hold. I would like to finish by saying thank you ever so much. Uh, great afternoon's conversation with you all. We could have done more. Uh, thank you very much to uh, Tracy Wong Harris, who is the Deputy, De Deputy Director General of the Hong Kong Green Finance Association. Thank you ever so much again to the Hong Kong Green Finance Association itself. Thank you very much to Kate Hodgson from uh, OSIA's uh, and also Ian Henderson, Managing Director of ADM Capital uh, in Hong Kong, and also uh, Kevin uh, Smith, uh, Director of Accorian here in Guernsey. Um, and that's it. We're out of time. It's a fantastic uh, conversation that I took away that the need to keep it simple, that, yes, we might have complicated structuring underlying, though, the, the need for to, to keep it simple, to, to learn from the bond market, the simplicity, and avoid the small scoreboard and, and complexity and concerns of that, uh, that explosion of reporting. It's a very confusing and large space, but the need to keep it simple is probably what we're going to, uh, to do for me to take on board to help drive capital to what is, after all, the ultimate objective, which is climate change mitigation. So thank you. Good afternoon. Good evening. Have a great uh, evening for those of you in Hong Kong. Don't have too much uh, fun all in one night. And uh, a good day's work over here on this side of the, the world.